0: at the end of October um, we are we are looking at what we're going to do with Christmas and pandemic Christmas um, as or uh, we'll call it uh, Covemas, miss um, the uh, so what we're going to do so uh, we are we are in the process of working out how to do choir um, and hopefully Nicole soon will be announcing what we're going to do I think it's going to be interesting it's going to be uh, unusual, um, but uh, you know, I, I won't tell you that it involves all the choir members standing out in the cold, because it doesn't. Um, but uh, but we are we're getting ready for that, um, and that means we're kind of getting into that season where we would be doing our chili cook-off, which we did, haven't done in a couple years, um, and uh, Thanksgiving services and Christmas Eve and all those things. And trying to work out how we're going to do all that stuff um, is quite an adventure. Um, in terms of stuff that is going on, Bible studies are going. I don't believe is Mike is Ray's group meeting this week? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So Ray's group is is Ray and Mike's group is meeting on Tuesday. Uh, here, um, uh, Bob Bragdon's group here on Wednesday. Um, Greg Jones's group is is various and assorted. Right, Greg? All right. Yeah. What, you just Stop moving on me, man. <laughs> so, are you guys are still up and hooks it this week? or Okay. Um, so, and they're doing Minor Prophets, and Mike is doing Acts, and uh, we're doing Exodus at, at, at Bob's group. Um, and um, Youth Group is this Sunday or next Sunday? It's supposed to be this Sunday. But Bulletin says next Sunday, probably because it's a carryover from last week. <laughs> Talk to that secretary. <laughs> but, uh, so. What do you want to do? You'll talk to the youth group. Talk to youth group. Yeah, talk to the kids. Um, so um, and then ladies' ministry met uh, last weekend. Um, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before via Zoom. Um, thank you for everybody's patience uh, last week um, dealing with having to go uh, having to go virtual. Um, and if you if you worship with us and you showed up at the door and there was nobody here because um, you didn't know that we were online. Um, drop us an email so that we can include you in the e- in the emailing list. Um, just info at bedfordroad.org, and we'll, we'll make sure you're in the list. Um, we sometimes have to pivot like that. This is the first time. Last Sunday was the first time we had to do it. Um, we had to pivot because we had some potential secondary exposure. And even in a conversation, I don't know if you've had a conversation with, like, a school nurse about what the exposure levels are. It's more confusing. It's like well, contact of a contact. If it's a secondary contact, if they were wearing a mask, but within six feet, and I'm I'm like uh, moving pieces around. I don't play complicated games on purpose. Um, but uh, so anyway, we, we were able. Everybody that's in our congregation tested that was exposed tested negative. We were able to come back together, which is which is great. Um, and just continue to pray uh, for uh, resolution so that we can we can it'd be nice to be able to restore our seating. It'd be nice to be able to have meals together, but obviously. Uh, we're dealing with uh, all the COVID restrictions um, on that. Uh, I think that's going on. Uh, the, the semiannual meeting will be uh, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. Next Sunday we'll have an agenda. It's a pretty straightforward meeting. Um, we will be doing it here um, in the building. We'll do it in the, the sanctuary um, after the worship gathering. So we'll have a break. And let everybody go to the bathroom and all that stuff, then we'll have a meeting. We will be zooming it. We'll we'll have a zoom video for those that aren't able to be um, in person so that all of the members, all of our covenant members can be here. If you're not a covenant member but you want to see how this incredibly odd church works, um, this is a a great opportunity to see uh, one of our vision meetings. Uh, We do have a couple of things that we want to talk about. Uh, We are going to, um, to bring on two elders. Um, Ray, Ray Pouliot, and, and Nate DeLisi, um, and so we want to. We that's been Ray's move has been pushed from May, so we really want to get that done. Um, we're not entirely sure if he is physically going to be here. He's supposed to be on vacation, um, and and I and then he told me he might be canceling vacation. So we're if he's here, we'll do it. If not, we'll wait until he gets back. But one way or the other, Doc is going in. All right, um, so we're we're gonna. We're going to do that, so we'll have some opportunity for conversation about that. Um, And like I said, we'll have an agenda next Sunday uh, available to come out this this coming weekend um, on the email. With all that said, let's take a look at the book of Ezra. Um, We're we're doing a study um, called Rebuild, um, and looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, which are really one book in the Bible. And uh, last week, the handout because we were online, we we Put the handout attached the handout to the to the online uh sermon page we did the same thing this week but you you'll see you have a handout in the bulletin um what i'm trying to do with those handouts because i am infamous for for wandering down historical rabbit trails and never coming back um so what i'm trying to do is put a lot of the historical stuff in those hands um, so that they're available to you so you can kind of reference things um, and what's going on um I'm not going verse by verse or anything through the book of Ezekiel. We're, we're going to, we're kind of, I'm just kind of dipping our toes into it. Um, I encourage you to read Ezekiel and Nehemiah. Um, you will discover uh, very quickly that it seems like things, um, that, that it, it is an amalgam of a bunch of stuff because it is. It's actually uh, a, what what most commentators would consider the first real history book of the Bible now not the first Bible book that has history in it but an actual work of history so so this is a it's an amalgam there's a, a lot of quoted sources and a large piece of Ezra is actually not in Hebrew like the rest of the Old Testament but it's in Aramaic um, which was the the um, the um, the The Persians called it the Assyrian tongue, or the Assyrian language. It was basically the language of the whole region. If you wanted to do um, business and diplomatic things, you learned Aramaic. Um and that was very much it's kind of like English is today in the world. Um, but uh, but it, it would it's almost like English is today if we were Dutch. right? So English, English and Dutch are sort of kind of related. I just watched this TV series because I'm an ultra-nerd. Um, I just watched this TV series on, on Netflix about the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, that the entire thing was in Old High German and Latin, and I was in heaven. Um, but but so, so Dutch and English are kind of sort of a little related. There's certain things um, that you can, for example, the Dutch word for father is vater, Vader. Um, you can kind of hear "motor." There, there, there are similar words. Um, but um, if, if we were, if we were to be Hebrews, Aramaic is kind of like it would be like the relationship of Dutch to English. Um, so everybody, you can learn it pretty quickly. Um, Aramaic and Hebrew they're similar enough. They're similar enough that you can you can pick them up. They're not mutually intelligible. So just because you speak one doesn't mean you can speak the other one. Um, let me let me give you an example uh, in. In Ezra, there's a term that appears in both languages, "God of Heaven." Um, in Hebrew, that's Elohim Shamayim. Um, in in Aramaic, it's El Sama. So you can hear you can hear the similarity, but they're not mutually intelligible. If you don't know, you're hearing the wor- the same word. You may not know that it's the same um, the same phrase. So so it it is it. Kind of breaks off. There's some interesting stuff that goes on that I won't spend time on. Um, but, uh, and that really starts in chapter 6. Uh, but um, we wanna, today we're going to be looking in chapter 3 of, of Ezra. And we're going to be getting into the rebuilding of the temple. Um, Ezra, uh, Ezra doesn't actually show up in the book named Ezra until later in the book. Um, this is during a period of a ruler, a governor named Zerubbabel. Um, he's a descendant of David, and he has gone come to Jerusalem specifically to rebuild the temple, right? Um, and so we pick up in, in Ezra chapter three, uh, when the seventh month came and the king of, and the children of Israel were in the towns that, that's uh, scattered out. So if you look at the handout, you'll see this, diagram of Yehud it talks about 50 towns around Jerusalem Um, that area around Jerusalem it's uh, it's about 10 10 miles uh, 10 15 miles by 10 15 miles it's really regular Um, it's not a very big space um, and, uh, but they're scattered throughout all these towns, and their whole genealogy is in chapter 2. When you read through genealogy and you see, read the sons of, the sons of, the sons of, the sons of, that's not the names of their fathers, that's the town. So the ton, sons of Hana, the sons of A, eh, the sons of Jericho, that, that, those are the people who are um, living in those towns. Sons was, uh, they were kind of, it's what's called that household of the fathers, but I'm going to get distracted if I wander down that road. Chapter 3 and verse 1, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Yozadak with his fellow priests, now he's going to be the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, he's the ruler, he's the governor, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Um, let's go ahead and word a prayer, and then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about this that are um, just as we read it. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word as you bring us again. Um, into your presence through our singing, through our prayer, through receiving the, the elements of the Lord's table and worshiping together. Now we come to your word. Open our, our ears to hear your voice, our hearts to know your uh, heart and will. Lord, may we, um, may we know you a little better through knowing your word a little better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Now read the attitude, the mood, of this opening statement and ask yourself the question, who is this being written for? Who is the audience of this book? And this is an important question, because if we don't know who the book was written for, then we can very easily read it wrong. Um, We can read it incorrectly. Um, Let me use an illustration while you're thinking about that question. If you've ever read, um, I believe it's Huckleberry Finn, um, Mark Twain has this thing about spelling the word Arkansas. When Huck says Arkansas, he spells it A-R-K-A-N-S-A-W. Um, now, for us, we all know that Arkansas is Arkansas. But if if you are somebody who's never been to Arkansas, never heard of Arkansas, and you were to see the words Kansas and Arkansas on the on a map, would you not assume they are pronounced the same way? So when Mark Twain wrote that, he intentionally spells Arkansas wrong so that people know how to pronounce it because Yankees didn't know how to pronounce Arkansas. Um, so. Now, you read that and you don't know that that was the situation. You just assume Mark Twain was ignorant and didn't know how to spell the word Arkansas. Um, and if Mark Twain was one thing, it was not ignorant. Um, and so, so we have this question of who is he writing to explains why he's writing it. So who do you think this is being written to? Is it being written to the people who participate in the story? What do you think? Is it written to the people that are going through this? Who could it be written for? I know, complicated questions on a Sunday morning. Everybody else. It is written with the assumption that you don't know why they're doing what they're doing. So it's written to people outside of the story. Now, that sounds kind of self-evident now that I've said it. But we have a tendency to read this and go, well, this is just, this is just a record of what happened. Well, it's not just a record of what happened. It explains what is happening and why it's happening and who is it doing it because people need to know. This record is written for the later generations who live in Jerusalem to understand what their forefathers went through to restore the temple, the process that they were going through. Um, Now, you say later generations. What does that mean? Like five, ten generations down, fifteen generations down? No, I mean, kids, grandkids, right? I mean, because, I mean, you and I all know that you can work really hard to build something, and then somebody comes along and goes, oh, I could have done it better, you know, because they have no perspective of the ang- of what was required of the process of that. Um, if you need to test that, you can just talk to my dad about anything about his childhood, And he will tell you, I carried beams through snow uphill 20 miles each way to build this house. Um, So anyway, uh, so they, they are offering these burnt offerings as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. How important is that phrase right there just to tell them that Moses was the man of God, right? So you've got a generation of people who are not even really totally sure who Moses is. And he has to be explained, and the law has to be explained. So, okay, this was written according to the law of Moses. Well, what's the law of Moses? That gives you a door to be able to go and teach people Torah. all right? And so this is, this is very much probably, and I know this sounds weird, but Ezra Nehemiah is probably the book that Jesus was debating with the leaders on when he's in the temple, when he's 12 years old the reconstruction of the temple, because the argument that was going on in Jesus' day about the temple was whether it was a valid temple or not because it had been built by Herod the Great. Now, that's a whole other rabbit trail, and I'm not going to get down it. Um, But this book was always being debated um, amongst the leaders, the the content of it. So verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths. That's a Sukkot. Um, Sukkot is an autumn festival, so this is happening at the same time of year that we're in right now. Um, as it is written, they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rules as each day required, and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made free will offering to the Lord. goes through and breaks down what's going on. The first of the seventh day they began to make offerings. And then we have this line at the end of verse 6, the foundations of the temple was not yet laid. So they're, they're making sacrifices, but they don't have a temple built yet. Okay, so they're reinstituting Judaism, they're reinstituting the temple practices, but they haven't built the temple yet. Um, now they begin the temple in chapter eight, chapter 3 and verse 8. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God, so this is about 536 B.C. Um, at Jerusalem, in the second month, um, so now we're in the spring, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Yeshua the son of Yozadak made a... Uh, a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen and priests and Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and they begin working on this. In verse 10, the builders laid the foundation of the temple. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. There's a big party. They sing Psalm 136. In verse 11, uh, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his hesed his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That Psalm 136 is the one, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever, his mercy endures forever. That, that's the song that they sing. All the people shouted with a great shout, proved that they were not from New England. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord was laid... But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. And they, they weep because um, this is, we, we tend to read this, though, they're mourning, you know, they're mourning over the foundation of this house, um, that they're, they're mourning because it's not as glorious as the previous one. Um, and there's a couple of ways we could read that weeping, whether that's what really what's going on or they're weeping because God has fulfilled his word through the prophet Jeremiah and the temple has been restored. Verse, chapter four chapter four is really where I want to look though this morning. This is all kind of background. I know I'm moving through chapter real fast. Now when the adversaries of Yehuda or Judah and Benjamin, these are the two tribes that have come together, heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now look at that phrase, right? They were building a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel, all right? So, very specific phrase. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's house and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Who are these people? They're, later, they're called the Samaritans. Right? Um, and, and Josephus is one, he kind of classifies them all as Samaritans. But who are they? Are they Jewish? Are they ethnically part of Israel? No. The Assyrians would take people from their homeland and put them somewhere else and say, now you live here and you live here, and you live here. It's like when your kids are fighting at dinner. You just move them around. Um, and this was, this was meant to prevent rebellion because are you going to rebel if, if gods, and this is kind of a glimpse in the ancient world, if a god is tied to a location and you take people out of the, that location and put them somewhere else, then their god can't help them rebel against you. Okay? So the Assyrians would take people and they move them. They move, they take Israel, they took the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. They took the ten tribes that made up that kingdom they spread them throughout their empire. They're called the lost tribes of Israel. Um, they never come back. Most of them never come back. And what they did was then they took people from other parts of the world and they planted them in what was Samaria or the center of the kingdom of Israel. And this is the king in doing this. Well, since they were there, well, who's the god of this land? We should worship him in case we need his help with anything. This is the ancient world. This is how you did things. So when you go to Egypt, you worship the Egyptian gods in case you need their help. If you go to Babylon, you worship the Babylonian gods in case you need their help. And you can see that in Daniel. That happens in the book of Daniel. And um, there's a whole thing about that. Well, these people uh, about about 150 years before, 200 years almost before, had been transplanted into the land where everybody worshipped the God of Israel, and so they just started doing sacrifices to the God of Israel. And so they come to Zerubbabel and Yeshua, and they say, well, so we'd really like to be a part of your temple thing. We'd like to build a, a house to your God. Now, um, look at look at what they say. Uh, let us build with you. And what they're implying with that statement is not building their, the temple the Jews are building, the, the Israelites are building, but building with you, building alongside of you. Let us build the temple too. And we'll all worship together here. right? We'll have two temples, we'll be neighbors, it'll be great. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses, verse verse 3, in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So what do they say? So the, these, these transplanted people who are, um, we might call them um, a Yahwistic community. That's a scholarly term for them. So they think they're worshiping the God of Israel. They want to worship alongside the Israelites. They say, we're doing sacrifices too. And we know, from, we know from archaeological finds that there were people all through this area who worshiped Yahweh, but they did it wrong. Now, I don't mean they did it wrong as in they were dressed inappropriately or not. They just classed him as another Canaanite god and worshiped him the way they worshiped Canaanite gods. So, well, Yahweh must be lonely, so you know, we'll make sure we dedicate our daughters to be his wives. And this was a Canaanite thing that they did. Um, well, we know Yahweh must be hungry, so we'll make sure that we make sacrifices to him like we would to Baal or we would to Dagon or any of the other gods, because Yahweh must be hungry. And Yahweh, Yahweh must need sacrifices, so we'll go ahead and make those sacrifices. And, you know, if Yahweh gets really upset at us, we'll just go ahead and sacrifice our kids to him, because that's what you do for God's. This casts this conversation in a slightly different light, doesn't it? Now, I'm not saying that these people were not sincere in their desire to hang out with the Jews. They were like, hey, we've been worshiping your God for like forever. We've been here. Can we can we come worship your God? But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the heads of the tribes know what happens. If they allow this false worship to even dwell next to the worship of the true God, what's going to happen? Right? What's going to happen? I mean, first of all, as fun as all the shouting and singing Psalm 136 is, Canaanite worship had. Let me think of the best way to describe their worship services. Okay. You remember Animal House? Okay. That's more or less Canaanite worship. Alright? Just complete pagan hedonism. The w- just just do... You're, you're just totally reveling in the flesh and your desires and drunkenness and all that stuff. That was Canaanite ecstaticism. That was how they worshipped. Now, as much as you'd like to believe the people of Israel are going to be super pious and they're going to hang out and sing Psalm 136 and be ordered and listen to the trumpets, if That is going on next door. Is this a safe place? All right. Um, And so, so they reject the offer. And what happens is that rejection. uh, In verse four, the people of the land discouraged the people. They actually, literally, tried to spoil them, tried to ruin them, and made them afraid to build. And bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus King. Even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Um, And in the reign of Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes, we're not really sure what that name Ahasuerus means. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, had the the Judites accepted this other group, they would have been able to build their temple with no problem, they would have been able to get things going. Right? It would have been more convenient to just accept them with the idea that, well, we can weed them out later. We can, we can purify later. There's a couple of warning signs that Zerubbabel hears, I think, in the, in the conversation that are worth noting here. They were valid enough that Zerubbabel drew a line knowing it was going to create opposition in the culture that he lived in. The first thing was that they, the people of Israel, had come to build a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. And these other very sincere, sincerely wrong, Yahwistic people, they wanted to build a temple and build a house. And look at what they say we want to worship your God. Not our God with you we want to worship our God collectively we can come and worship your God in other words we can include you your God in with our thing so Zerubbabel knows how this is going to work he knows the relationship that's going to happen it's going to be it's not going to be a conversion of these people to the proper worship of God it's going to be a corruption of the people of God to follow him, to follow this, these, this other version of worshiping God. And, and beside that, they're not there to build the house. They're there to build a house. So they're not going to rebuild the temple of Solomon. They think they can build their own thing. They can have their own thing, so they can have a proprietary copyrighted version of worshiping Yahweh. And, of course, their true motivation is revealed because the moment that they're rejected, they decide to stop the Hebrews from building. They decide, and they apparently bully them and cajole them and bribe people. And I have, you know, whenever I read this and it says, and they bribe counselors against them, I just think they were talking to the building inspector and just, they were just going to... What does this look at us when we're trying to rebuild our lives? when we're trying to rebuild something that is broken, How? How? what can we look at from this point of view? I think it's important that we understand that sometimes very sincere help can do more damage than good. I love to help with building projects. I am not allowed to for a reason. I have sincere good wishes to complete projects. I am not a very good helper. Um, I can pick things up and put them down very well. Um, But I am not a carpenter. I own no actual tools. Um, I own a ratchet set um, that I don't even remember where I got it from and it's missing several components. Um, I am one of those people that is perfectly content to just jam something into a metric ratchet to get it to turn an English head. I am not a person to have on building projects. This is not where I should be. My sincere help would wind up doing more damage than good. And while I don't doubt that these people were sincere what they wanted to do was actually going to be at odds with the rebuilding of the lives of these people. I was, uh, I was reading a comic book yesterday. My wife thinks it's funny that at 44 years old I still... No, she doesn't say it's funny. She says it's cute. That at 44 years old I still read comic books. I don't pay for comic books. In, tw- In my 20s I paid for comic books. Now I've discovered the library lets you rent them for free on your iPad... Um, and I was reading a comic book and one of the superheroes, he, he was um, in a, a, an illicit relationship with a, a woman that was not his wife. And he was going um, and, and, uh, to, and save, basically to save his face as a superhero, he put her on a bus, this other woman, and he sends her away. And he's at this place and this other superhero says to him, why would you deny what makes you happy in this situation? Right? And so the superhero goes off and rescues the girl and, um, from the bus and leaves his wife and, and is supposedly happy until he gets crushed by a spaceship. Anyway. Um, but the, it's a comic book. It's not real life, okay? Um, but that argument, very sincere help, why wouldn't you want to do what would make you happy? Very sincere help, but not biblical advice. Not biblical advice at all in that situation. When we're trying to rebuild something, there's going to be lots of people who are sincerely trying to help you, but you have to test their motivations and their desires for you against the motivations and desires of Christ in your life. There are plenty of people who offer help. All you have to do is be on the internet for 30 seconds And everybody, who else has gotten the commercials on YouTube about the guys? Do you have $30,000 in cash? What are you doing with that? And they're like trying to sell you like some, you know, like the real estate thing. I'm like, first of all, I'm like, who has $30,000 in cash? I was like, I'm in the wrong gig, clearly. Um, But but these YouTube guys, you know, and they're trying to sell you these get rich quick. You want to get out of your debt. Here's the solution. There's plenty of sincere help that may not necessarily actually be help. There are plenty of sincere people who want to have deep, invested relationships with you that won't help you. You have to ask the question whether their their agenda, their God, is actually your God or just goes by your God's name. And this is a question I ask people all the time about Christian books. I read this book and it was such an encouragement to me and it made me feel so good. Yeah, but did you test it against the scriptures? Did you test the advice that you were being given against the word of God? You say, well, I'm not qualified to do that. Do you have friendships, partnerships, relationships with believers who can help you with that? That is kind of the function of a church, that we are helping and encouraging one another. These people were lifestyle believers who had just fallen into their role as worshipers of God. Well, they'd actually been transplanted by a despotic hegemony, but, um, but they, were, they, were, they, they found themselves in Israel. They decided to worship the God of Israel, but there was no price for them. The people who were coming back from exile, they had paid the price. They had gone from living in the Al-Yehuda, which, which was basically... I mean, there was a place in Babylon called Jewtown. That was actually what it was called. They, they had, like, their whole own province. And they, they had their own governors, they had their own rulers, they had their own currency, they, they had all the freedom in the world. They, they, the exiles were not slaves. You, you have to get that picture out of your mind that the exiles went to Babylon and they were slaves, like, like in Egypt. They, they were actually privileged members of Babylonian society. They have left that behind to come back to the edge of the universe, to the Persians. Uh, the, the Achmanids, the Persians, the Iranians, they are actually clo- more closely related to people in India than they are to anybody living in the Middle East. Their languages, Indo- uh, Indo-Aryan is descended from a whole other section of languages. They, they're completely distinct. Somebody asked me this week, whether they were Arabs, they are not Arabs. The Indian, um the Aryan people—that's the, the core of the word Indian, uh, 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 Iranian, um, or Persian—they they are a whole other group of people. They are completely distinct from the Middle East. They are not a part of the Middle East. Iran is a whole other place. And today they're Muslims, but um, but they were—they had their own religion. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, They they had left Babylon. The Jews had left Babylon and gone all the way to the edge of the Persian world. They were living on on the absolute frontier. It was the wild, wild west. There had been a cost for them to go and build the temple. There was no cost for these people. There was no value in it. It just was what they did. And, you know, as much as sincere help that's sincerely wrong, we have to test it. We have to watch out for people too who are willing on the other side to just go with the flow. You're gonna rebuild things, it takes work. You don't just fall into rebuilding stuff. When somebody's house burns down, they don't just keep coming to their house hoping that one day a new house falls in place. You you get the insurance money, you hire contracts, you build a new house. It involves work. It involves, there's a price to be paid, to rebuild. And these people just wanted to waltz in and go, hey, you know, we could help. Do you ever want help from people like that anyway? You know, somebody's like, hey, you know, i got nothing better to do. I'll just hang out with you and fix whatever it is you're fixing. You want somebody who wants it fixed. They want it done. They want to finish the job. They want to do the thing. Not just hang out and loaf. Uh, Greg Jones is infamous. What's the one thing we don't do when we're moving, Greg? Eat! Everybody's like, well, we got pizza at the other place. And Greg and I are like, no! (laughs) Move boxes. Give pizza to people. They sit. They talk. I got other things to do. Let's move these boxes. You know, we'll eat later. You know, we're going to get this. That's the guy you want helping you, right? You want the guy that's going to finish the job. Not the guy that's like, well, you know, I could come back next Tuesday or three weeks from now. The person that's fixing your toilet, you want him devoted to fixing that toilet. <laughs> you want him committed to that role. You want him to willing to pay the price to fix that thing. When you're rebuilding, and just I'm going to summarize, when you're rebuilding, and you need help, watch out for these two kinds of people because they will wind up being more detrimental Than helpful. The sincere but sincerely wrong. And the the casual helper. I mean, we all have that friend who flits in and out of our lives to help us, wreaks havoc in a situation. Actually, now that I think about it, I think I might be that person in my sister's. I'm infamous for showing up at my sister's houses and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with my nieces and nephews and then leaving. And my my sisters are like, thanks a lot. Now they want to climb the trees in the backyard. I was like, well, let them climb the trees in the backyard. I don't want to climb trees with them. They want me to climb trees with them. Thank you very much, Uncle Eric. I don't know what I did to my nephew Joshua, but but when he was about two, he's he's twenty now. Um, he decided I was one of the twelve apostles. And so he's. <laughs> It would be in, like, nursery, and they'd be reciting the names of the 12 apostles, and you'd go, like, Simon, Judas, and Uncle Eric. My sister said, thank you very much. My son told his Sunday school teacher that you know Jesus better than everybody else. I think I am that person. I probably need to ask my sister's forgiveness. Um, You don't want the person that kind of casually helps you don't want the person that's sincere but sincerely wrong when you're rebuilding you want to rebuild with the people that want to rebuild that's one of the reasons why rebuilding a marriage requires a commitment from both members of the marriage you can't have one person desperately trying to rebuild their marriage while the other person is like eh, whatever you have to be committed to that that's why parenting, and I get it, I get it, that we live in a world where there's tons of single parents and we do our best to help them out and everything, but that's why parenting generally is easier when there's two of you. <laughs> you know? And it's not just because you can play good cop, bad cop. It's, there's a partnership. When there's two people committed to a thing, when there's a community committed to rebuilding, that thing gets done. But when you're relying on the sincere but sincerely wrong, when you're relying on the, hey, well, we're here anyway, the lifestyle helpers, they're just, they float in and out, nothing ever gets done. And when you kick them out, they wind up making it worse anyway. And that's what happens in the temple. So I encourage you, and we're all always rebuilding something in our lives, to, to invest in your time, energy, love, devotion, relationships to a community that is going to keep you on the biblical path of rebuilding whatever it is you're rebuilding. People that are going to be committed to rebuild that thing. Um, And invest your energy in those people. Because those are the people that God Brought alongside of you to accomplish the work. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, our lives are a constant process of rebuilding. We are always trying to restore something that has fallen because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that that things break down. And Lord, you called us into the church, the assembly. Not just so we could sing together and pray together, but so that we could work together. And not just work in terms of doing ministries for the church, but work in terms of working on ourselves and one another. The author of Hebrews called us to provoke one another to good works. Jesus speaks about our good works in the the plural. The people would see our good works in the plural and glorify you. We are all projects. We are all at work rebuilding. Father, help us to seek out the help that you have given to us rather than relying on what is convenient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in the doxology. Let's stand. Amen. Go in peace, my brothers.